Litigation is often complex and multifaceted. Not surprisingly, it is an area where we continue to see a high number of professional negligence claims against solicitors. In this program, Janice Purvis, Solicitor and Manager of Practice Support Services at Law Cover, and Melissa Fenton, partner at Colin Biggers and Paisley, discuss recent cases which highlight the key risk areas in litigation practice. We examine how each matter can present a different set of risks, how you can recognise this risk and manage it effectively. Welcome to Risk on Air, Mel. Thank you very much, Janet. And you certainly are an expert um, on the litigation issues. <laughs> the reason we're talking about litigation today is, of course, unfortunately there seems to be an increase in professional indemnity claims in the litigation area. Yes, that's right. It is, it's a bit of a minefield, I think, in litigation because it is a, an area of high-pressure uh, work environment for lawyers. The clients have high expectations, there's court pressures and things can happen in a very fast pace. So there are lots of areas where mistakes where things can, can happen. go wrong. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. Because there's lots of aspects. There's lots of, I call it um, a bitty type of yeah. work <laughs> in the fact yes. that not only are you doing bits and pieces at different um, times along the spectrum of the litigation, but you've got different people doing things. You've got That's junior right. lawyers doing it, sometimes the partner's doing it, different people talking to your clients. Yes. Um, you're going to court. Yes. Um, you're providing advice. So That's there's right. lots of thing, p- places there are, where there things... There are so many places where things can go wrong. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the pace these days of litigation is very different to what it was 5, 10, 20 years ago. Even now we have online court. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, yeah. yeah, so we, you know, orders have to be made, entry by 2 o'clock and the other side have to reply by 6 o'clock that same day. There's a lot of pressure on solicitors to be on top of everything. And like you said, when you've got clients and court and then internal procedures within your firm, mm. um, you can see how things can go wrong. Absolutely. And, of course, I didn't realise, of course, the technology aspect as yep. you said, I mean, now lots of courts are um, online. In fact, they're even, um, especially in criminal matters, you know, a lot of the matters are videotaped. You know, you've got your client actually sitting in a cell and back at the prison. Uh, yes. That type of thing. It is. I guess no law, it is slow to evolve, <laughs> but it does evolve. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some really good cases that have been delivered in the last year or so in the Victorian courts and, and here in New South Wales where they have looked at um, where lawyers have fallen short, if you like, in the negligent management Mm. of litigation. There's lots of traps, things like failing to comply with court orders or settlements where perhaps you've um, thought you've done the best you can for your client but at the end of the day your client's unhappy and they turn around and then say, well, I wasn't given the correct advice. So that, that is a real... Is, it, is that an area where you find Absolutely, and I think probably the settlement area is, is maybe a good place to start, really, uh, when you think about in any litigation at any time you're always discussing some form of settlement with respect to your client, but in particular when you're having specific settlement conferences. And to name a case... Yeah. Um, of course, probably um, the most um, pertinent one for, from 2018 is the Sprouger and Bullard case. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, that's my, right. My 
apologies to Mr Sprouger if I've got the pronunciation wrong, um, but it's a Sprouger case. And my understanding is um, Mr Sprouger was in litigation um, with a Mr Kelly in relation to the sale of a fishing permit and shark catch quota. Um, the litigation was settled. However, afterwards, Mr Sprouger asserted that his solicitors and barristers did not really advise him properly with respect to the settlement terms. That's right. In fact, he even went as far as to say they forced him into the settlement terms and that he did not agree with them. And as any litigator will appreciate that... After a settlement, after your client has gone home and thought about it, some of them are happy in hindsight and many are unhappy in hindsight. And that's not uncommon. I mean, that's the spirit of compromise. You know, a lot of mediators will say to you, everybody's going to leave today not feeling like they've been satisfied. So that's the whole spirit of compromise. But that that is the challenge. And I know in Mr Sprouger's case, there were a couple of factors that were influencing why he felt that he didn't get the settlement he achieved. I mean, he did. He made accusations against the lawyers that they should have realised he wasn't feeling well at the time that he was um, talking about settling the case. He also said that he didn't really understand the way that they had explained the settlement to him. A lot of the criticism that Judge Woodward had in this case was that the lawyers, uh, when they were explaining to him the pros and cons of proceeding with the litigation, they focused on the negative aspects, which I think is a bit of a common theme for many lawyers. Litigation is expensive. The cost consequences of not succeeding can be very significant. And so there might be a tendency to focus on the negatives rather than the positives. And I know Mr Sprouger's complaint in this case was the solicitors didn't tell him or didn't give him enough information about the good the good parts of his his case. Yeah, but I understand it that they concentrated on the risks that, of losing the case and all the holes in his case. Uh, but as the judge said, he said they didn't um, con- didn't advise him at all on well. He did have prospects of success. Yes. And the good points of the case and that these would um, issue. That's right. And, in fact, Judge Woodward said the advice that the lawyers had given to him was actually superficial and quite unbalanced and and he actually thought in part misconceived. Um, And he thought that there was actually definitely much better prospects of Mr Sprouger succeeding and his lawyers, it was incumbent upon them to explain that to him. So, so, I mean, that's I feel for lawyers in that high-pressure mm. environment because it is difficult to explain the risks to your client and it's as a lawyer it's something that you do every day but for your client they're not probably involved in litigation every day. So it is difficult to ensure that they understand and the risks. And it is incumbent upon you to ascertain as to the mood, health or whatever of your client as well as to if they are really understanding it. It's not good enough just to provide the explanation. It's actually incumbent upon you to ensure your client understands it. You know, Janice, that's a great point because I was going to say we as lawyers, we, we advise on the law and the prospects but we also have to take into account we know our client. It's our job to understand our client. Absolutely. And what their needs are and what the outcome means to them and it won't be the same for every client even though the law that applies is the same. Mm. Uh, that's, yeah, excellent. To and certainly that. I've noticed in a lot of the um, very complex cases 
where there are complex damages, and again, I, I think Justice Woodward um, alluded to this, is you should do a lot of work beforehand. They should have had a table showing the minimum and maximum likely awards for each of the heads of damages and mm. that they hadn't explained to Mr Sprailger um, accurately enough as to the um, the cost, the, you know, the damages and cost issues um, as well. That's right. And the, and the strengths of the weaknesses, the, the suitable settlement range. We all know it's not just one figure. There'll be a, a low range and a high mm. range. Yes, Woodward did. And, of course, the magic um, thing that we are always talking about is <laughs> you should take lots of contemporaneous file notes yeah. um, as to what you've actually said and even have the client um, sign the settlement document, uh, the settlement instructions, even before you get to the, the binding documents, whether it's heads of agreement or, um, or an actual deed, that you should actually have your client sign the settlement instructions so that they're clear yes. as to what they they are telling that's you. A, that's also an interesting point because in this case he did he did sign um, and he said that he felt that he was pressured to sign mm. because uh, the news that he was hearing from his lawyers was that it was all doom and gloom mm. and, and he felt that there were some very significant cost consequences if he didn't accept that settlement. It was a really, really good observation in this case as well that Woodward, and I think I mentioned this to you earlier when mm. we were talking, um, that if you don't have documents like file notes or even uh, ideally signed documents with the client's instructions, the court does tend to prefer the evidence of the client in these scenarios and that's because they don't go to court every day like lawyers and so their memory of the events is likely to be far clearer than a lawyer who might have 20 clients or 20 matters going to court in mm. any one week. And I thought that was an interesting point that he raised. Absolutely. And that is not only in respect to litigation claims. It's in respect to any claim in any area of law. It, the fact that the documentary evidence... Um, will certainly be preferred mm. over anybody's memory and mm. good contemporaneous file notes. And I can totally recognise, being a lawyer myself, that sometimes you think, oh, God, I can't be bothered, or you're racing off to the next meeting yes. or client calls. I'll get around to that file note. I'll get around to, to mm. documenting it. And you just don't get to in the end. Well, and often you might be in hearing 10 years later. So the, the chances of you actually then recalling what happened then. I, I, there is one case, and, I, and the name escapes me at the moment, where evidence of the solicitor's usual practice was accepted uh, instead of a specific file note. But that particular solicitor had a very structured, orderly way of working um, so that often doesn't it often does not get you over no, the line. No, and use technology these days. It's a lot easier. Um, I, for instance, um, often used to pick up a, a dictaphone. Uh, now you can have Dragon dictate yes, on your I use that computer I do it straight away. Yes, uh, so that it makes it a lot easier than having to actually type it out or 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 longhand. But even typing is certainly a lot quicker than writing it out longhand. So yeah, you know, the opportunities um, to make file notes, even if you're using a dictaphone and you're getting your secretary or, or assistant to, um, well, to a, type it out for you. Another good way of using technology is emails. I'll often now, I'll, I'll get off the phone after I've spoken to a client and then I'll send an email confirming our discussion and then that becomes the file note on the file. Absolutely. So that's and of, that's a fabulous yeah. way because it, it, it's 
cementing the um, communication that mm. you've had mm. an excellent way. And probably before we, just before we leave the settlement area is, um, in the last year or two, there's oh, yes. been a very um, significant or two very significant matters that came out of the High Court um, of um, interest um, to solicitors. And I'll Yes, I see you've I'm, got I'm a happy. quote oh, there. Oh, these are close to my heart because I love. <laughs> I've followed the advocates' immunity, um, and that's what we're talking about. Development advocates for a immunity. long time. Most lawyers would know about the advocates' immunity, and, and you're right, Janice. In the last um, year or so, there have been two very significant high court decisions in both Atwell's and Jackson Lalich and Kenderjan and Lapore, and both of those decisions have fairly much established the law in Australia now, which is that. Um, the scope of immunity for advocates has been clawed back from what it has been historically and it's clear now that it doesn't extend to giving advice about settlement. So historically we might have been able to say that advising clients on settlement ranges and um, giving them options was part of litigation and therefore if they were then unhappy we would be protected by advocates' immunity. Well, it's now very clear that is not the case in Australia. It is not considered um, closely connected to the work that's conducted in court and you won't be protected. So all of the things that we just talked about in terms of protecting yourself when you are giving settlement advice is, you know, make sure that your, your client has had sufficient time to consider what your advice is so that they're not making any decisions on the fly and feeling pressured that you've also given them considered advice, both pros and cons and, and ranges, and ultimately it's their decision. You're there to give the advice but it's it's their decision. So um, um, Absolutely. And it can be difficult when a lot of these settlement discussions are actually done when the hearing is progressing and oh. that can be very much on the fly and then it's even more important that... Um, you provide the, the notes and the really considered advice because, you know, it is not covered by advocates' immunity. That's right. And in my experience, it's sad but true, there is a lot of, there is still a lot of negotiation on the doorstep yep. of, of the court, Absolutely. particularly in the, the regional sittings when you've got rolling lists. It's a really common occurrence. So, okay. Well, we might um, lead on to another subject now and I thought this is a really interesting case of Rami and Saturus. Um, this was uh, some litigation which was involving a gentleman and his companies and the gentleman and um, I'll, I'll slash husband and the companies had um, were impecunious, put it that way, and did not have any funds to pay for the litigation. The wife, however, appeared to be um, have significant she was the financial holder. That's significant right. <laughs> uh, financial um, advantage. Yeah. Uh, so the um, lawyers um, did a deal, I suppose, with the wife, and the wife agreed to pay for the litigation, which is not unusual. I mean, in, in not unusual scenario. in a husband yeah. and wife scenario. Yeah. However, the litigation was in respect of the husband only, and the husband's company. The That's wife right. was not a party to the litigation. Correct. But there was this unusual aspect of it. It wasn't a funder coming in as a third party. I was going to say it's almost like a litigation funder but it's not. She's almost underwriting her husband's um, prospects by, by agreeing to pay his legal fees. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in this particular matter, it's a good example, um, this was a law cover case. 
the um, insured solicitor was acting in the litigation involving Mr Ramay and his companies um, and, as I said, had no real assets. The assets were in the name, Mrs Ramay's name, so she was asked to enter into an agreement to pay the costs of the litigation and to also to grant a charge over property to secure the liability under the costs agreement. So the wife was actually entering into the costs agreement, not the client. That's right. And offering a mortgage. And offer, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the undertaking of the work that was uh, made it clear um, that Mrs Ramey was not hurt the client and it also said she needed to seek independent legal advice in relation to the costs agreement and the charge. And that I, I wanted to say at that point that, that, is, um, that is excellent advice from mm. the lawyers, very, very careful. I've certainly in my experience seen a number of lawyers seek um mortgages over clients, properties to underwrite, if you like, or secure a costs agreement. And uh, it's very important in that scenario to make sure that they've had their own independent legal advice. And even more so here when she had no personal interest in the litigation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, you've probably all guessed um, the litigation at the end of the day <laughs> went pear-shaped. It wouldn't be a story otherwise. Uh, well, no, it wouldn't be <laughs> on a radar, would it? Uh, it went pear-shaped. Um, the uh, wife decided to sue the solicitor. She said the insured breached um, his fiduciary obligations to her in entering into the cost agreement and taking security um, of the property and that, that and that he gave negligent advice as to the prospects of the success of the litigation. Now, this is another aspect altogether. Mm. Um, Justice Emmett said he was satisfied that the solicitor was not acting for the wife at the relevant time and that they did what they should have done in that they referred Mrs Ramey for independent advice in respect of the costs agreement and the security doc documents. They did. However, there was um, a catch in it. Um, <laughs> There was no advice given in respect of the prospects, the prospects that's of right. the husband's case yes. that she was underwriting. Yes. But I th and I think that also Emmett was critical of her in not asking yes. for for that advice as well. I think they had also said to her, she sh um, the lawyer she went to see in respect of the costs agreement uh, and the security. The lawyer actually said to her, you should get some advice in respect of the success of the litigation. Yes. I can't give that to you because I'm not involved in the litigation, but you should go back to your husband's solicitors and ask, ask their that. advice That's in right. respect of it or indeed hire somebody else who was in a position to be able to give you that informed advice. advice. Exactly. And she did not do that. Yeah, and I think the costs here that she was exposed to were in the order of around $250,000. So mm. it was a significant loss to her to not um, do that. But she did She did sign it knowingly and when she signed the cost agreement, she also signed an acknowledgement that she had obtained legal advice about the document. And I think that was why Emmett was quite happy to find that um, the lawyers in this case, the insured mm. lawyers, had, had done all that was reasonable in the circumstances so the solicitor had made it clear multiple times that she needed to go and get independent legal yeah. advice. Um, we must note that apparently this um, particular case um, is um, under appeal. So we'll certainly be watching that. Yes. Um, but certainly Justice Stevenson was um, said that the 
the wife herself did not do herself any favours mm. and she should have taken reasonable steps, especially in respect that she got that advice and yeah, she didn't do it. I think this it. case is also a good reminder and the lawyers here, the, the law cover insureds, did a very good job in differentiating between their client and the third party payer because Absolutely. that can be blurred sometimes and I think where it is blurred you mightn't get such a strong decision in your favour and you may actually be exposed. Mm. So that, that's another good takeaway. And as we know um, um, in the litigation um, sometimes obtaining your costs can be a tricky issue. So <laughs> yes. yes. So. And, and as we said earlier litigation is expensive so people will do what they can to avoid uh, which is probably what Mrs Rame was Absolutely. attempting to do. Now when, I, when we introduced um, this topic and we were saying that litigation, there were lots of aspects to the litigation, lots of bits, different people doing different aspects. I think this is highlighted in this particular case. Oh, this case makes me so sad. It's terrible. It, I... is, it is a train wreck. <laughs> it is um, a train wreck and I do use this in my risk briefings actually because it is so horrific. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and the case we are talking about, we should tell our audience exactly yes. what we're talking about, this is the Berry Rural Cooperative Society Limited versus CPAC Industries and it's a 2018 claim. And um, just to remind you, you'll be able to get all the citations for um, these cases um, on um, the email which delivers the Risk On Air podcast to you. Do you want to... Um... Yes. Look, th this is a very sobering... I I um, have circulated this decision to all of the solicitors <laughs> that I work with um, because it is... I, I think you said earlier too, you know, in, in a firm you, you may have juniors working on files and then you might have your partner and there are solicitors on the record. And this is one of those cases where you can see how um, competent judges will not tolerate default and they require accountability. So so in this case... And it's in the commercial list in the Supreme Court. You know, yes. we're not in the the local court no. in a rural area. This is the Supreme Court this commercial is, this list. This is Hamishlag's list, which yes. is a renowned <laughs> list for um, a svelte operation. But this, this case, the plaintiff solicitors who brought the case on behalf of the Berry Rural Co-op, they had sold um, some equipment to the defendant and the, the sale went wrong and so they ended up in litigation. And um, in the course of then bringing the proceedings, the solicitor for the plaintiff consistently failed to meet court orders. So, you know, we all know in litigation once proceedings are filed you'll get a, a court timetable and that will list a, a progression of what needs to happen with a view to having the, the case concluded in 12 to 18 months. So plaintiff didn't comply with any of these orders Finally, the um, the judge lost patience and Hammerschlag ordered what's called a guillotine order. So litigators amongst us will know what that means. It's like you've got one chance. If you miss this final chance, you are um, prevented from f serving any evidence. And that can be fatal to a case. If you're going to trial and you've got no evidence, then um, you've definitely got the underhand. The... Um, the plaintiff's solicitor then thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll see if I can bring a motion and get Hammerschlag to give us some leave to then have one more chance. The motion was granted. The plaintiff's solicitor's failed to turn up at the motion. So it just, it just kept getting worse. 
eventually the opponents decided to say, well, we're going to approach the the court now and see if we can get these proceedings dismissed. This is crazy. How can we be expected to respond to a claim when um, the plaintiffs are in continual default? The court determined what to do. Do they dismiss the proceedings because of the defaults or do they deal with the defaults? And what um, Justice D- Stevenson decided was it wasn't actually the Berry Rural Co-op Society, so the client. It wasn't actually the client's fault that there were the defaults. It was actually the plaintiff's solicitors. And, in fact, he said, and this is the bit that I quote because it um, it is so harsh, the invidious position of the cooperative, which is the plaintiff here, is due entirely to the egregious shortcomings in the manner in which its legal representatives have conducted these proceedings. So I think there are sections of the judgment where Stephen says the the manner in which the litigation was conducted was a disgrace. The, um, The court decided to allow the plaintiff time to put on evidence but at the same time ordered that the solicitor on the record personally pay the costs thrown away of the motion and the delay. In addition to making that order, the judge also ordered that not only the solicitor with the carriage of the matter but the partner on the record come before the court and explain themselves um, and the explanations that were offered were um, were considered very dimly by the judge. The judge essentially said, you know, one was I didn't um, put a diary entry in for the date or I slept through my alarm. It was, <laughs> it was yeah, it was. Dog ate my this homework. Is, this is why I say it is just such a, it is sort of the worst scenario, um, but it clearly happens. And the the other thing that I think a lot of lawyers will be aware of the judge went further than ordering the cost be paid personally and also ordered that his decision and the the reasons for his decision be circulated to the plaintiff solicitor's client. Every board member of that client read those reasons. So there would have been a massive personal reputation hit for this lawyer um, in addition to the personal cost. And the solicitor actually had to provide proof that he had distributed the decision yep. to the board of the um, the plaintiff. That's right. So it is, it's a very sobering reminder. I mean, the, the court processes now, the court, you know, like we said before, we talked about um, technology trying to streamline the systems. You've got Section 56 of the Civil Procedure Act, which is all about the just, quick resolution of litigation. Um, so judges now are taking those um, mandates very seriously. They are aware of the delay and cost of litigation, so they're not tolerating any any truancies, if you like. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. as to why this occurred, you can only guesstimate. I mean, we you know, he talked about sleeping through alarms. I think in this um, particular case the principal was relying on his um, junior lawyer um, to perform the work, certainly to turn up to court, there obviously was insufficient supervision in yes. respect of it. Whether the junior lawyer put his head in the sand and it just went from bad it was to all worse, too hard, which maybe. is understandable. Yes. It may yes. have been far too hard for him, and he just didn't um, want to do it. Good risk management lesson is: don't take on matters that you don't have experience in. Don't think to yourself. 
oh, this might be a good matter to take on, I don't really know the area, but I'll just brief counsel and those mm. types of mm, things. That's right. Um, ensure that you've got the resources within your firm to handle it. You know, do you have the people that can turn up at court? And that's right, and systems even. And yeah, diary, diary, diary systems yep. and uh, things like that. And also the fact that if you are the solicitor um, on the record and things go wrong, um, there is a very real risk um, of obtaining a personal cost order. Mm, and the right. courts now are handing them out yes. um, fairly freely, not unfairly, but freely if they feel. Then they're not, as you said in the beginning, they're not going to slot the actual client because the client is not to blame. No, and, and often the, the judge will see that. They, they'll identify where the real fault uh, lays and it's often the client doesn't even know in many cases that, often, that yes. orders have been missed. Which yes. I think is why he specifically said wanted to um, make sure that the client um, got the right story. Yes, yeah, I agree, which I, I thought that was a very unusual but um, uh, very uh, interesting judgment. So. And talking about diary systems, I mean, that brings up another issue of limitation periods. Yes. Well, that's a, I mean, you, as law cover, you, you would have seen over the years many, many cases that have, and claims that have arisen out of missed limitation periods. And that's why um, law cover does put out um, a, a volume, schedule. a schedule yeah. of limitation periods on um civil matters within New South Wales. And it's interesting, one um, solicitor said to me uh, one day, he said, you know what I do? He said, I get a copy, when I get the latest copy of that, he said, I get extra copies. He said, I put one on every solicitor's desk <laughs> so that when their clients come in, the first thing they're in their eye is a limitation period. So that the first thing they say that they're thinking of is this a limitation issue? Yes. And, you know, that's good too. Is there a yes. limitation period in respect of it? You know, Front of if mind. It's, if it's a personal injury matter, you know, you've got yes. to think of limitations. Um that should be front of mind. I think that's useful too when you do have, sometimes you have solicitors who are on leave or you have staff turnover and if you do have something documented at the front of the file, then no matter who picks up that file, it's the first thing they think about, whether that's something that they need to be mindful of. I think Absolutely. that's great risk management. Yes. And I often say that um, I should be able to, or anybody, because um, there, are, there are changes of staff all the time in solicitors' practices, and if people have documented file notes and document and um, put the um, court documents in order, you should actually be able to start at page one of the file and by the time you get to the last page, you should know the history of the file, you should be able to understand it, That's you should right. know what needs to be done next, yes. at what time, where, how and... And if there are any looming deadlines. That's so, right. so the importance of having a really good organised filing system in respect of litigation, I think it is essential. And it's a matter for you. Some people have um, files with, um, they have court documents in one file, they'll have correspondence with the clients in another file, yes. um, they'll have affidavits in another file, whatever way um, you like to organise yeah. it. But I think it is about a system. It's it about is. having a that, consistent system mm. and litigation is fast-paced and you need your system sorted out so that when you are 
beginning proceedings or defending proceedings, you've got the the support you need to make sure that it's it's going to proceed in a, in a way that you're not getting any personal cost orders against you. <laughs> uh, probably the, the next matter, which probably is applicable to most areas of law and not only in the litigation area, and something that comes up a lot is conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And the case that I think you're going to talk about, is it Gordana? That's yes. the one. Um, so Gordana Smith and another and Colin Steingold. That, that is, um, it's not necessarily what people think of immediately when they think of conflict of interest, but it's excellent in, um, I think it's something to be mindful of. Were you, were you going to talk about the... Yes, Gordana Smith um, matter. This is where the solicitor was acting for the first and second defendant in the shareholding proceedings. However, in the past, the solicitor had not only acted for these defendants, they'd also acted for the plaintiffs on both an individual, personal level and in respect of their positions in the company, at the company level. The solicitor ceased acting for the plaintiffs and the company and then decided he would only act for the defendant. Mm. The plaintiffs obviously then alleged that the solicitor was aware of confidential information and familiar with the conduct and character of the issues and in the context of the litigation due to the past association. And the solicitor was restrained from acting for the defendants. And Rain, um, Justice Rain, um, actually quoted here, said, even if Mr Russell will not be a witness, the point remains that he has acquired knowledge and experience of Mr and Mrs Smith as their solicitor. And further, the case is one involving allegations of a kind that bring Mr Russell close to the issues in the case and raise the real possibility that he will have information or knowledge of the plaintiffs that he would not have obtained if he had not acted for them in the past and which could be relevant to his consideration um, of these particular um, issues. Look, and I think that's a that's a great quote because it is it is true. Even though you say I'm acting for a different entity now, and it is difficult when you've got directors and companies and shareholders, which is again also working out who your client is. You definitely do get a sense of what your client's appetite for risk is, whether they're inclined to settle, whether they're going to be bullish, and knowing that information about a potential opponent is a real tactical advantage. And I think that's absolutely a conflict of interest. And the solicitor should never have accepted uh, that retainer. Yes, it, it talks about um, familiarity with the party's strengths and vulnerabilities, not mm. so much to actual information, mm. it's as who they are as people and, as you said, as to the risk appetite. That's right. I find with in my experience with litigation, um, 80% of it is actually driven by the various personalities that are involved in the litigation. So it's actually a very significant part of how you manage a case and whether you resolve or, or fight. So Absolutely. Uh, and look, it, it, it's not necessarily a, a conflict there, but if you are familiar um, with these particular clients, you should consider your position before taking instructions um, of acting against former clients. Um, Directors, employees, individuals, I would probably err on the side of 
caution That's right. and say that I can't, cannot. And well, the act. other option is to seek informed consent. So if you know, if you think that you um, can, you know, salvage the relationship, you can you can seek consent from everybody if you explain the risks. But I think you're right to err on caution. There's would be actually the safest. been an unlitigated matter at law cover where informed consent was given. And the conflict was really still there. Still real. Notwithstanding um, yes, the informed consent. So I, I just think err on the side of caution. Don't go there. Um, don't go there. Um, you know, uh, recommend, refer, um, but you're better off just, yes, playing playing the um, the safe um, the safe road. Well, look, and if you've got an, a repeat client in that case where you do act for the company and the various directors, it's it's much, you know, if, if you are worried about turning away work, it's certainly a better long-term solution to have uh, a client that's happy for the long term rather than risk the relationship over one piece of litigation. Absolutely. We were talking about systems before and and courts being online and those types of things. Your claims prevention tips for that, um, what would you say? I mean, I think obviously you would need to have incredible systems in place, um, monitor your email traffic frequently. E- email's a big one. I think I mentioned earlier yes. online court. Uh, that You know, you've got 24-hour turnaround for those. So say, for example, you've got one contact person in the firm and they're getting the online court emails and they're not responding, that's a real concern because the court does have the capacity to ask you to show cause if you haven't entered orders. Um, So email traffic definitely. Email traffic I think has become um, a huge trap Um, and it's a common way that people communicate these days, especially in the legal um, field and I think especially in litigation. You're going to be getting emails from your client you're going to get getting emails from the other side, emails from the court. Um, I remember in the early days of emails, people used to say <laughs> you shouldn't monitor your emails. You just look at them at nine o'clock in the morning and then do your work and look at them again at three o'clock in the afternoon. If you did that now, you'd you'd get ten phone calls. <laughs> have, you, have you got my email? Why haven't you read my email? Well, it's the <laughs> expectation now that people want instant responses. That's right. Yes, um, and I think. If in any matters at all, you know, if you are not prepared to give those instant responses, you've got to say to your client things like, please send, you know, this information by email. I won't be responding to it instantly. You know, I won't be ringing you up in 10 minutes. Um, I will deal with it and get back to you as the matter dictates. It may be two days. Yes. It may be a week. So that is about managing expectations. Absolutely. So that, that is a theme here for the for the negligent management of litigation as well. Mm. So much of it is, and you know this, is Absolutely. communication and managing your client's expectations. If they know that you're not going to respond and within, unless it's going to be within 24 hours, they're not going to call you 10 times wondering if you've had the email. But if they're expecting you to be, you know, available every five minutes, then you are going to hit roadblocks. Um, so it is. I, I definitely think for me the risk management messages are um, communicate with your clients and, and, and manage the expectations and particularly with litigation because it can mm. be fraught. Absolutely. And the expert and manage your expectations of the actual court process. Yes. That it is a long road um, to hope clients get very frustrated and can't see why it does take so long and the process 
and I think communicating that to your, to your client um, is, you know, essential and, as you say, manage their expectations that things are not going to happen overnight, be it a response to an email or the court process. Yeah, that's um, right. And, and we forget too as litigators, you know, we, we're in court or responding to court orders or dealing with evidence every week our clients aren't, we need to explain what it means when there are court orders made and, and the significance of compliance and things like that. So, yeah, it is. It is all about communication. It's an unfortunate thing that we could probably um, um, talk all day. I could, um, I could go on. On and on <laughs> and on um, about um, matters. Um, but I, I think um, it, it is essential, I think, what we've um, uh, learnt today is it's management, it's time management, it's people management, um, it's supervision. Supervision, again, is becoming a big issue. Mm. Um, it's great to have the trust of your employees but um, principals have got to remember that, you know, if they are employing people that it is incumbent upon them to supervise. That's right. They are the solicitors on the record and at the end of the day uh, the buck will stop with them. Absolutely. And that now um, courts are uh, more inclined um, to award personal costs orders. Um, when I started um, in litigation, there was no such thing as a personal cost order. Yes. Um, but now it is becoming where, so, where solicitors are being held responsible um, for their actions or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. And it's the courts trying to control their own processes. You know, they really are using every tool that they have in their toolbox um, to make sure that the experience for litigants is as, as streamlined as, as possible. Fast as possible. Absolutely. That's right. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. For joining me today. And I also want to add that um, Melissa very um, competently and kindly also conducts our face-to-face -face, uh, risk briefings, <laughs> which you. are two-hour risk briefings, delving into a lot more detail um, than what we have been able to today. I certainly recommend it to all solicitors and particularly to employed solicitors. I think that sometimes they they don't realise that they need to be responsible, as, as responsible for the risks involved as their principals are. So thank you very much, thank Melissa. Thank you very much for having me, Jana. It's great to speak to you. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.